Today we're going to be reading um, Nehemiah 13, 4 through 11, 15, 23 to 25, and 31b. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all, all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 37 year of Xerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Elishaheb had done, providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and then I put, them, I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on their donkeys, together with wines, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashad, Ammon, and Moab, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashad or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. And in verse 31, Nehemiah says, remember me with favor, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would just anoint the lips of Pastor Kyle as he brings forth your word from Nehemiah. Open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Nehemiah is tit, <laughs> as you could probably notice. I wanted to thank everyone for being here this morning. It's so good to have you all here uh, to just worship God today on the Lord's Day. Um, what, a, what a great day. This, remember the sun? That big gas ball in the sky, it's back giving us heat. Um, so it's just so good to be here with you all this morning. And I just want to encourage you, if you didn't know about this already, we have some, some really great small groups uh, that meet regularly. Um, we have a Bible study and, and prayer night right here on Wednesday nights. That's a lot of fun. We do a men's, men's group on Saturday morning, and I believe we're going to start a women's one real soon with Jesse, who is leading our worship. So you know Jesse, so that'll hopefully be starting soon. Just a way to get to know each other better and to have fellowship around God's Word if you're interested in that. But I'm just uh, so happy to see just that enthusiasm and a desire to not only uh, spend time with each other and in, in, uh, fellowship with each other, but also to reach our community, and that's going to be a lot of fun 
um, being able to do that uh, this uh, or the, on the 23rd when we get to do that event. So um, just thank you all for your enthusiasm and your participation. It's been so much fun um, being able to serve Jesus together as a local church. Um, we actually just passed, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we just passed our two years of being here in Warren. Um, I believe it was uh, June 6th or 7th, was, was it the 6th? Yeah, um, that we, we started, we, met, we started meeting for church before that, but as in Warren, it was, it was June 6th. So that's a really cool um, anniversary for us. It's been great since we've been here and just excited to see what the Lord holds for us in the future. But today, actually, we're ending this uh, look at the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 13, and as you could notice from the tone, Nehemiah is not happy. <laughs> um, I found in my life so far that uh, we human beings are prone to change, right? It's not always necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's good. Um, if you look at the kind of clothes I wore when I was 15, you're probably happy that I changed my mind about my style. Um, our taste in music changes. Our taste in art and hairstyle and more. All these things sort of change. Um, even those we considered, how many people had really close friends 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago, that you just don't even talk to anymore, and it, maybe not because of a falling out, but just life has changed. And it just uh, happens to be the case at times with life. I've also found that even things that are very important to us, maybe even most important to us, can shift from here to there. Our once valued priorities and um, have, have become a distant memory. I've personally uh, seen in my life, for example, men and women, once leaders in the church, how many people have ever noticed this? Teachers and even pastors decide that one day other things have become more important to them besides their faith in Jesus Christ. So people around us, leaders in the church, uh, become passive, separated, no longer involved. Maybe they still claim to have a faith, but they've changed so much about the faith, everything what it means to be a Christian, all of its theology, virtue, and values, it doesn't even look like Christianity anymore. And others, I've, I've noticed, I've witnessed this um, in, in my own lifespan as a Christian, um, a, a senior pastor of a church deciding that he was an atheist and leaving his congregation. Things change. People change. But our God does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was quite shocking, though, for me. If you've ever experienced anything like this, you don't have to raise your hand. But for me, it just kind of growing. I grew up in the church, so I was very much used to having a lot of people around me that were Christians. Um, so it was quite shocking to me, though, as I grew up and I started seeing people that I just once thought were paragons of Christian virtue um, become indifferent and separated and no longer living the lives of great passion um, and holiness that they used to. So it was kind of disillusioning for me to kind of watch this happen. Um, it, it even kind of tested my own faith. Like, what's, what's going on here? I thought these people were changed and new and they love Jesus, and now, now they're completely gone. And at, at times I've kind of had to stop in my Christian life and just look around, just be like, what happened? Where, where is everybody? Where did everybody go? Right? How, you guys ever feel like this? And you kind of feel like, remember Elijah? When he was kind of um, having a pity party, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, <clears throat> torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And at times in my life, I've kind of felt like that. Where is everybody? 
that said that they once loved Jesus. But then, you know, after I get off my judgmental high horse, I, and I <laughs> look at myself, and I realize my own instability, my own kind of waxing and waning in the faith and in, in my own Christian life, my own personal devotion to follow Jesus, to obey him faithfully. So at times in my life, I've noticed I've been very strong in the faith and zealous for God and wanting to follow him and evangelizing friends and family, kind of living on this, um, on this kind of personal spiritual high. But at other times, I've felt just failed and fallen abysmally, just completely feeling like a completely different person that I used to be, justifying my actions even, you know, saying things like, well, you know, I'm human, no one's perfect, right, and just kind of living like this. So I've, I've witnessed the ebbs and flows of my own drive in pursuit of that pure fellowship with my creator. So what's this drifting all about? What's this changing? I can see the, the words of the hymn, the, you know, that famous hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In our flesh, we're kind of prone to drift prone to be tempted by sin, prone to think that the world is just more fun, more pleasing, more satisfying, more secure than relationship with Christ and our Father in heaven. We approach the final chapter of Nehemiah, and you, you might have noticed that already, that at first glance, it kind of seems like a discouraging way to end an account of Israel's renewal. If you know anything about the book of ne- Nehemiah, we just went through 12 chapters of awesome progress. The whole book is about turning from one sin to another, rebuilding walls, doing all these amazing works for God, people repenting, confessing, all of these amazing things. It's spiritual revival. That's what's happening in Israel for 12 chapters. There's all this opposition, and the people continually shut down that opposition. We will follow the Lord. We will obey the Lord. It marks spiritual revival. In spite of that opposition, they rebuild the walls. You remember all this? They hear the reading of Scripture. They repent of their sin. They covenant to obey the law. And they they say, we will honor the Sabbath. We will care for the public worship of God in the temple. They make a covenant in chapter 10 for all this. They determine not to marry anyone of foreign faith in chapter 10. They uproot their lives to move back to Jerusalem from safety to danger because it was an unestablished, uninhabited city with, with broken down walls and a meager army. And finally, at the completion, we did this last week in chapter 12, there's this great festival because God had provided. The people's hearts had turned from sin to righteousness, and they're all dancing and singing, and they enter into the temple with joy and jubilation. So for 12 chapters, we have an account of all of these wonderful breakthroughs. Okay, now now just kind of stop for a moment and think about your life. Think about your Nehemiah story, the wonderful breakthroughs. If this is you and you're a Christian, how you came to faith in Jesus, how you turned from sin to following Jesus, how you shared your faith. We probably all have this kind of memory of spiritual life. If you're new to the faith, you might be in the middle of that. Now, now if you're old in the faith, fast forward a little time and remember how what once once was alive and vibrant just seemed to flitter away. I think every single one of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, will know that you've wandered from time to time. What once was great life and great power and great victory, you've just forgotten. So that's what we have happening here at the end of 
chapter 13 at the end of the book of Nehemiah, James Montgomery Boyce says that this is probably the most important chapter in the whole book because it's just so glaringly different from the rest of it. It's almost as if this book was written for this chapter to remind us that as a church, as spiritually high as we can become, we can all fall prey to wandering and to losing our life and power and significance in the world that we live in. We are not the exception. Just because we have a story of life and power doesn't mean that we can take it easy. That the spiritual life is just going to happen, and I can be lazy now, and God will just kind of make me whole and rich and spiritually full. That we don't have to exercise ourselves to godliness anymore, and we can just kind of kick back and relax. Our text reads in verse 6, In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king some time later. I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So I want to set up a little bit of the context for you in this chapter so we can understand what's going on. I, I chose some verses, but you might lose the context because I left some, some of the other ones out. And if this is your first time coming into the sermon series, you might really not know where we're at in the story of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was a leader, of course, and he had two governorships, governorships in Jerusalem, two times in particular where he actually led Jerusalem. The first time, Nehemiah was about 40 years old. It's when, at the very beginning of Nehemiah, he, he got the report that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, and he asks, he, he asks the ruler of um, Persia, Artaxerxes, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And for 12 years, he ruled over Jerusalem. He rebuilt the walls, and he, they, they, they found spiritual life renewal and repentance. And this is chapters 1 through 12 of Nehemiah. That's his first governorship. Okay? For 12 chapters, this is the first time he, he's ruling over, over Jerusalem. He's setting up religious institutions, spiritual leaders, the, the safety of the walls, all of these different things. And after 12 years of this, the, the, the life and community in Israel is revived. They're following the Lord. They're obeying the Lord. So Nehemiah decides to go back to Artaxerxes, to Persia. And another 12 years go by, about approximately 8 to 13 years actually, goes by when he returns. So Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, if you do the math, at about age 65. When most of us are getting ready to retire, Nehemiah takes on a second governorship in Jerusalem. He returns to Jerusalem, and he does probably some of his most important work. His second governorship is chapter 13. So you've got to kind of see Nehemiah not as one event happening in a few weeks, but over many, over, over the course of maybe um, 24 to 30 years. In chapter 13, Nehemiah is back because Israel had wandered. He returns <clears throat> to find the nation that had in chapter 10 covenanted to care for the temple, honor the Sabbath, and not marry anyone of foreign faith. In chapter 8, they read the law. Do you remember this? They had been convicted about their disobedience. In chapter 9, they all repent. They all confess their sin and repent. Chapter 10, they say, they make a covenant. We're not going to do these things anymore. May God throw a curse down on our heads in chapter 10 if we do these things again. In 1039, it reads, we will not neglect the house of God. Israel is, is covenanting this. But here in chapter 13, some 8 to 13 years later, Israel had demonstrated that they were prone to wander. And Nehemiah had to rebuke them 
They turned on every single one of their promises to God in chapter 10. It is, read chapter 10 and chapter 13 alongside each other. It's like the opposite. It's like bizarro chapter, right? Everything they said, we'll do this, these three, four, five things. And then chapter 13, Nehemiah is rebuking them for the exact same things that they had promised not to do. Not unrelated things, not different things, the same things. Incredible. And before we, we can kind of say, oh, we're Christians, how? That's so silly. How could they do that? How, where, where is their willpower? But I mean, right? Is, is that not our story too? Once having said, oh, God, thank you for saving me. I'll, you know, I can't believe I used to do X, Y, and Z. And then five years later, we find ourselves doing X, Y, and Z. So Nehemiah rebukes these, um, these Israelites in chapter 10 for their disobedience and their wandering. And that's how it ends. That's how chapter 13 ends. Now, have you noticed that as a Christian, that almost all of your life, your good intentions and your desire to follow Jesus at some point has been neglected or forgotten, drifted away from? That could be where you're at right now. That's where Israel was at. And thanks to God for his grace, that he does, doesn't puff us up in a smoke of dust, but he allows us again to remember him, to, get, to offer us an opportunity to turn to him again. And that's, you know, as hard as this chapter can be to read, isn't it, um, isn't it certainly about that, that God, God's grace is still available to these folks? Because God could have just puffed them up in a pillar of fire and they would have been gone and said, all right, I'll create new people. But he doesn't do that. He sends Nehemiah. He says, Nehemiah to rebuke them, to say, come back to the Lord. And what a signal of his grace and his mercy that we have the chance, no matter how far we've drifted, to come back because God loves us, to say, I'm missing out on what is most important. So Nehemiah here is an example of perseverance. Nehemiah hadn't changed. He still has his vision. He still has his values. Israel had wandered and changed and retreated, but Nehemiah had persevered while Israel had surrendered. And this is why this chapter is so important. If we wander, if we retreat, if we make light, if we change the gospel, if we abandon his word, we're just going to suffer. We're going to die. We're going to lose our significance as a local church. And every single person in every single local church can enter into this, all of us. So because of this, all of us as individual Christians and every congregation, knowing that we can be prone to wander, we need some lessons in perseverance, don't we? How did Nehemiah stay? What was the difference in his life between him and the nation of Israel who attended to wander? Because if Nehemiah is an example of a person who doesn't ha- that doesn't have to be his story, that tells me it doesn't have to be our story either. That we can persevere. That God has given us what we need in his word and in the spiritual life to continue. Now we're all tempted to wander, but that doesn't mean we have to fall victim to it. And Nehemiah is an example of this. He was no superman. He had, flesh like, he had a flesh like you and I. He had sin. But he had practices in his life that preserved him from wandering. And I think that we can find these in our own lives to prevent it from happening in our own. So our text illustrates two things, and this is going to be the rest of our sermon. 
Elements of decline and the process of renewal. Elements of decline and the process of renewal. So let's look at the elements of decline. What starts to happen that causes our own decline in our wandering, our drifting? The first thing, um, there are three, the word, the house, and the holy, and I'll explain to you what those mean in a moment. So let's, let's look at the first. Decline in the life of the church and decline in the individual spiritual life always begins with the neglect of God's word. That's where it starts. In, 13, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found, dot, dot, dot. So in other words, when we approach God's word faithfully and corporately, it exposes, it challenges, it brings to light, it was found. When we close our Bibles, when we neglect where the Bible is being proclaimed and practiced, then we begin to drift. When we rely off of Bible memory verses from when we were 18 or 15 or 27, we need the word of God afresh if we are not to drift. I might suggest to you that it's impossible for any believer in Jesus to live long in sin if you're regularly hearing the word of God. It is very difficult to sit on sin when you, when you often hear God's word. Whether, you, whether it be your practice to read it regularly or to hear it proclaimed or both, it's very difficult to stay in sin when you're so close to God and his holiness and the power of his word. To set it aside, but when we set it aside intentionally, when we neglect it, maybe unintentionally, we're going to start to drift. To live in a way that we formally committed not to live. Like I said, the text says it was found. So they start to hear the word of God again. And if you don't realize this in chapter 13, this is important. Because every time Israel had fallen into sin, the way they got out of it was the public reading of God's word. That's what, that's what happens always in the beginning. And it was found written in the law that was read in the hearing of the people. And all of a sudden the people realized what they had done. So our drifting begins and ends with the hearing of God's word. It was found, written in the law. Don't understand this to be saying that they learned something that they had not previously known. Right? So in other words, they were caught in some sin, but they didn't know it was that because they hadn't read that part of God's word yet. You might, you might think that that's what that means. It was found. They knew this already. They had promised three chapters ago to not do these things. So they knew in their minds. They weren't finding it in the sense of having, um, having not known it before. They were finding it in the sense that they were remembering the power of, of the need to obey it. You see? They had forgotten the significance, the impact. Is they, they had known these things because they had vowed to them. The word of God was cutting their conscience. And that's what scripture does. When we read it, when we hear it, when we expose ourselves to it, listen to the Bible's own testimony of itself. What the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 2, you probably know this in the New Testament. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, 
correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what scripture does. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, when we don't have the word of God regularly in our lives, there's nothing examining our thoughts and attitudes, our motivations, our choices. Psalm chapter 109. Is that Titanic? (laughs) every night in my dreams (laughs) if this is your first time hearing that was you I'm sorry (laughs) Psalm chapter 109 your word is a lamp for my feet a light to my path this is what the word of God does it lights up our path you see you remember what it says it was found how do you find things in the dark oh thank you Thank you so much. How do you find things in the dark? Light, right? How did they find the way? How did Israel find the way in their darkness? The light of God's word. Isn't that true? Is it hot in here or is it just me? I think our AC is broke. So we're sweating. We're losing weight today. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, your spiritual life is going to be in decline when you lose the word. It's just going to happen. It's your light, it's your correction, it's your trainer, it's your equipper. You need the word, friend. You say, like, well, I don't really, you know, care about all this. You know, I just kind of, every now and then, show up to church or whatever. This isn't really all that important to me. But maybe you're thinking to your mind, you know, it probably should be. I know it probably should be more important to me than it is. But then start reading the word of God. Just start reading it. Start praying. Start asking. And God will do it. Number two, the house. The decline in the life of the church and the Christian continues with with the neglect of the gathering itself, the church itself, the house. The leaders of the local church, right, this is their local church in chapter 13, basically decided to neglect the care of the house of God and the spiritual leaders, and they did this in a couple of ways. The first way they did it is they didn't care for the monetary needs of the church leader, the church leaders. What they decided to do was instead of storing up the offerings for the spiritual leaders and and the equipment that they needed to lead worship, they took all of that stuff out and gave Tobiah an apartment. (laughs) So now the spiritual leaders didn't have an income and they didn't have the resources that they they needed to lead the church in worship. So they neglected the, the, the tithe. They used the storage rooms meant to store up offerings and the equipment of worship to give someone a free place to live. And by the way, Tobiah earlier in Nehemiah was an enemy of Israel. He was an antagonist towards Nehemiah. This was not a good dude. He was slippery. So as a result, the spiritual leaders who were meant to lead the people in worship, they had to leave the ministry. They had to go back to their farms and work their lands because they had no incomes to support their, um, their families. Those tasked to read the book of Moses in the hearing of the people in 13 couldn't continue that, mystery, that ministry because the people had neglected their care. Friends, we can tend towards neglecting the local church even to this day, and we can do it in a few ways. This isn't just about money. That is certainly one way. We can neglect, we can neglect the local church financially, and this is the example that we're given here in Scripture 
We don't give generously. We don't enable the work of ministry by our finances. Another way that we can do it is physically. In other words, we come maybe sporadically. We don't commit. We, we're, we're ser- we serve infrequently, if ever. We neglect the Sabbath, quote-unquote. You see them here doing that even. They're neglecting the Sabbath, the gathering, the worship of God with his people. So physically, we can neglect it physically. We can neglect it authentically. Maybe you can say, well, I show up and I give. But are you living authentically, though? Are you doing it in a, you know, as a religious show? Like you remember Ananias and Sapphira who said, oh, I'm going to give all of my money to God. Aren't I spiritually grand? But they, they had lied. They, they, they had, they had give, given half of their money. And that would have been fine in the context. No one was expected to give everything. But they wanted to, for whatever the reason, they wanted to demonstrate their public persona to people as greater than what they thought as greater than what it actually was. And a lot of times we can do that. We don't live authentically, in other words. We show up to church, so we're here, we're physically present, we're financially present, but we're lying constantly. We're living in secret sin. We pretend as if we're something that we're not because we want people to like us or look up to us or respect us. So we, we don't care for the local church by, living in, by not living in open confession. You see what I mean? So let's not forget, too, how Scripture describes the importance of the local church in Ephesians 4. Why, why are we to care for it to begin with? Why can't we just watch Charles Stanley on TV on Sunday mornings? Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. This is the local church, right? Why did he give us the local church? To equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ, not the individual, but the corporate members of the church, may be built up until we reach the unity in the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now listen to this in verse 14 in Ephesians 4. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves. In other words... We're not going to drift. We're not going to be one person today and different three years from now. We're going to be steady. We're going to be stable. We're going to be growing and maturing. But we need to care for the local church by doing that. And that doesn't mean painting. It's just, that doesn't mean just giving money to it. It means everything that's, that the Bible says about the one another's of Scripture. Living our lives together in community. Right? Caring for each other, living financially, physically, authentically with each other. Caring for each other's needs, confessing sin. This is the importance of the local church. By, uh, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That means that the local church needs you. It needs you to be active and alive and vibrant and involved. It needs you to care for it. Because, right, each part doing its work, that's each person, is what makes this happen at the local church level. So rather than vacillating between highs and lows of the Christian life or towards the the neglect of God, His Word, and our fellowship, we we grow stable and mature, not tossed to and fro. 
So the church is God's provision for growth in Christ. How can we read Ephesians 4 and not come to that conclusion, friend? The church is God's, the local church is God's provision for growth in Christ. So we need to designate our best to care for it, don't we? That's what we learn in Nehemiah chapter 13. It's what we learn in Ephesians chapter 4, that we need to care for the house of God. Because at the house of God, we, t- we find two things. We find the presence of God through his people. Right? It's, it's, the Old Test- it's the New Testament's version of the Old Testament temple. Right? That's why it's so important. <clears throat> and finally, <clears throat> we cannot neglect the holy. Thirdly, and sh- uh, should we seek not to decline or drift? Let me explain to you what I mean. We enter into cl- decline when we begin to unite with things which cause us to sin. Now, the example of this in Scripture in Nehemiah 13 is marrying, um, getting married to someone of a different faith. Okay? That, the, that the prone, your proneness to drift increases. You are not doomed, by the way, if that is your situation now, to drift from God. But your, your proneness to drift increases when we marry of a different faith. Now let's just kind of generalize this, not make it just about marriage. Our text shows us that even Solomon, remember King Solomon with all of his wisdom and all of his treasure and all, all the, the way that he, he built up Israel into this grandeur? In Nehemiah chapter 13, I don't believe we read this part, but um, it ta- Nehemiah talks about Solomon. He says, he was beloved of God. He was extraordinarily wise. He was a king without equal, but even his heart was turned to sin. So this teaches us something from Scripture that we cannot marry ourselves to things that are going to cause us to sin. And when I say marry ourselves, I don't don't mean just actual physical marriage. Scripture doesn't want us to be judgmental either, to isolate into Christian ghettos. But there's another extreme besides the monastic, besides isolation because we're afraid of becoming sinners or greater sinners. But that, and that, is, that extreme is replacing a healthy diet of the word and of prayer and church with entertainment, with work, with relationships that have no godly compass. We surround ourselves constantly with, with all, of, um, all of the evil and the sin that the world has to offer, and we wonder how it is that our heart drifts. Well, friend, could that be the reason? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that everything about the world is evil. There are great things that God has given in his grace. And we should love our neighbors and love, and love the people around us that don't know Jesus. We've we got to be careful how we talk about the world, I think. But the reality is, my point is, the more that we expose ourselves to that which is most sinful about the world, how, how can we think that it won't affect us in our drifting? The things that we watch, the, the TV programs and the movies and the music that we listen to and think that it's not going to affect our soul. So when we join ourselves to anything without any consideration to our own distinct call to be holy, we're going to begin the road to decline, to retract on a former commitment to follow God faithfully. Let let me say it positively. If you want to progress to maturity in the Christian life, to not drift, you're going to hold out Scripture continually, right? You're going to engage his worship and his people faithfully, the house, And you're going to join yourselves intimately to that which draws you closer to Jesus. See? 
See, when you do those things, you are less prone to drift, to wander. And if you have wandered, there's hope in your climb. There is a process of renewal. Because we're all prone to wander, we need to learn how it is if we've started to wander, how do we get out of it? So this is the process of renewal in chapter 13. The first thing that we see in the process of renewal is similar to its decline. It's basically sight. It's the word. So in our text, the word was read, and this gave Nehemiah the ability to see red flags. The text reads, I discovered the evil of Eliashib. I realized provisions for the spiritual leaders were neglected. I saw people working on the Sabbath. I saw unholy alliances. He had sight. He had light. And our ability to examine ourselves and even our faith community, honestly, is only going to come with the light of God's word. So, so the process of renewal comes first when we bring the word of God back into our lives faithfully. Because it acts as light exposing darkness. So we need to come to the light. The second thing that we need to do is we need to grieve. We need to grieve. I know, this, I, I know we don't like this, but we need to grieve. Every single time Israel and Nehemiah had realized it had drifted from God, the first reaction was grief. We need to grieve sin. Not so, you know, God forgave it. Dear Jesus, we confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and the cleanse of all righteousness. Right? No. It is a wicked, evil offense to God. It's never okay. When Nehemiah learns of this willful sin, as God's word is exposed, he's grieved bitterly in verse 8, if you remember. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't make light, light of it. He doesn't just get into this good old boys type of mentality. Well, you know, these are good guys. They help rebuild. Remember all the good we did, all the, the walls we built, and all the rejoicing and all this stuff? These are the same people. They did a lot of good. So just forget it. It's okay. No, he, he, he weeps bitterly. He grieves bitterly because what's not at stake is the, the feelings of the people who have turned from God. What's at stake is the holiness of God. God himself and who he is and how he's demonstrated in the world. So he doesn't make light of it. He doesn't give him a pass because they're his buddies. He grieves it bitterly. And as followers of Jesus, though we do fall, we should never think for a moment that it somehow doesn't matter, that, it, that for some reason it shouldn't cause us grief in our hearts. It should grieve us. And if it doesn't, we need to ask God to help us grieve again. The third thing is we need to rebuke. We need a rebuke. Did you know that sometimes, friend, you need to be rebuked? And so do I. That means that sometimes there's got to be another Christian that comes into your life and says, brother, sister, I love you, but you're off here. And I'm worried about you. You see, most of the time in my experience, I don't know if this is the same everywhere I've gone, most of the time in my experience when that happens, and I'm talking about this for myself too, my first reaction is, how dare you? What's your problem? I know some things you did. <laughs> right? Isn't that the reaction? Or, or you don't know the situation. We start immediately becoming angry, defending ourselves. But this isn't what happens. You see what Nehemiah does? Three times with three different groups of people, didn't matter who they were, didn't matter if they were leaders in the church, he says, I contended with them. 
with the nobles, with the rulers, with the people, because sin wasn't okay. It was going to hurt the people doing it. So in other words, his rebuke was out of care for them. But it was also care for the people of Israel, for the, for the local church itself. So it wasn't okay. It was injurious to the person committing it, to God, to the community of faith. And at each rebuke, Nehemiah appeals to their memory. He says, don't you remember that this is how Solomon got turned away into sin? Don't you remember that this is why we went into exile to begin with? Friends, turn, right? Rebuke you. And, and, and if you don't have anyone rebuking you, you need to let the word of God do it. You need to rebuke yourself at times. Because isn't it true that at times in our life, maybe no one is brave enough to actually do it? So does that give us a pass? No, we've got to speak it out loud. What am I doing? The Word of God says that, don't I remember what happened last time? Don't I remember what the Word of God says? That I'm, tra- I'm trading this infinite joy and peace for something less than? So we need to rebuke ourselves. And then, the fourth thing is we need to take action. Nehemiah acts quickly. Don't you notice this? He doesn't wait around until feelings are kind of okay and make sure everyone's not going to get hurt by his choices. He doesn't do this. He acts quickly. He, he goes into the storeroom, and I, just, I, I like to picture myself outside of the door and just kind of seeing a couch get thrown out in clothes, right? <laughs> like just all of this stuff getting thrown. That's what he says. He says, here's what's going to happen. Excuse me. It's almost like when Jesus went into the temple. You remember when Jesus went into the temple and they're selling all this stuff and he hears cows and lambs and what's going So what does he start doing? He starts tipping things over. He starts throwing things out. He, Jesus acts quickly. Nehemiah acts quickly. He throws all of Tobias' junk out of the storeroom. He locks the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And he warns the, the, the pagan peoples who are trying to get in. They're still trying to get in on the Sabbath day. Excuse me, can we come in? we got stuff to sell. He says, if you don't get out of here, there's going to be consequences. You don't sell here on the Sabbath day. So he acts quickly. He doesn't wait He doesn't think to himself, well, I can't do without this particular thing in my life. Some of us need to act quickly. Some of us need to throw our computers away. You need to throw it in the trash can. Say, I can't live without my computer. Yes, you can. Of course you can. Go to the library. You know what you can't live without? Jesus Christ. We need to act. We can need to confess our secret sins. We need to lock the gates. We need to read the word aloud. We need to do it now because it's that serious, friend. If we want to, enter, if we want to get out of our drifting, and make no mistake, just because you're here doesn't mean that you're not drifting. Just because you're, you're warm in a seat right now doesn't mean that you're not drifting. We need to act. And let me close. I don't want this to, to sound like as we're just to be tough and impatient with people when we fail. Because there's a way to go about handling things in our own lives and other people's lives. We're not supposed to become judgmental or gossipy. But my point is, the spiritual life that we once knew is a decision away from fleeing from us. Sin is that powerful, friend. And we need systems in our lives to keep us close to Jesus, not to separate us from him. And we find a lot of grace, actually, in this. 
because Nehemiah doesn't kick them out. He throws the stuff out, doesn't he? He locks the gates. The people are still inside. He's giving them another chance. God is gracious. So anyone who has wandered, myself included, can write, can be, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can get up and say no more. God is, this is a new day. God is good. He loves me. And he's giving me another chance. Amen? Three times in chapter 13, Nehemiah says this, Remember me, God, for the good deeds I have done. We only read it once, but three times he says this, Remember me, God, for the good deeds that I have done. Friends, what we do matters. The care of our own spiritual lives and the church matters to God. God remembers it. He remembers it. So God delights when we thrive and when his people thrive, when we remember this is a priority. So please uh, close your eyes with me in prayer. God, thank you for those words and that great hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Oh God, we know that we are prone to wander, that we are prone to leave the God we love. But God, help us to remember that your goodness, like a fetter, can bind our wandering hearts to you. God, you are gracious with forgetful people. God, help us to remember by your word who you are and who you desire us to be. And thank you, Lord, for giving us grace to start this day new. Oh, God, if any of us are here this morning and we have been wandering and neglecting and having fun with Satan, I pray, Lord, that your word would be like a light to us. That this sermon, Lord, wouldn't be an offense because it was maybe a little bit more harsh than normal. But God, let us see it as your grace. That you love us enough to warn us. That there, to, to promise us something better. So God, we come to you and repentance, and faith, trusting that you can restore us no matter how far we've wandered. Thank you for this, God. Thank you that you are slow to anger and that you abound in loving kindness. God, I pray for each person here, Lord. Because we're prone to wander, keep us close to your word, to each other, to your holiness. And anyone here that's been drifting maybe for a while, Oh God, I pray your word like a lasso went, went around their waist and is pulling them back in. And God, I ask, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ and has never put faith in Jesus Christ, that this very moment they would trust in you. They would know that their sin has kept them from you. A willful disobedience and rebellion towards the creator who loves us has separated us from you. We have, we have dis, 
disregarded your word and your law. We have scorned it. We have spurned it. And God, we are separate from you because of it. But God, because of your great love for us, you sent your son to die for sinners like us, to pay the penalty we deserved. Oh, and friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you can trust in him right now and have every sin you've ever committed separated from you, put on Jesus, and your life is now reunited with your maker and creator and savior. And you are adopted into his family and have an eternal hope in Christ. So put your sin on him and trust in Jesus. And if that's you, friends, the Bible says, confess and be baptized. I hope you'll do that.